Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and we have another great episode for you this week. My co-host Adam is here, as always, and before we dive into this week's news, uh, I want to mention about the Floor 9 listener survey. As a reminder, the Floor 9 listener survey is live currently. You can go check out our show notes. You can find it on social. I'm, I'm tweeting about it. Uh, it should only take you about five minutes, and we greatly appreciate any feedback that you can provide. Uh, this feedback helps us actually improve the show and make sure the content that we're producing is the best for your consuming, for, for, for your ears. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Brain FM, for sponsoring this year's Floor 9 survey. So thank you for that. Uh, and because of that, we will be giving out 10 subscriptions to the Brain FM service. But if you're not familiar with Brain FM, they make functional music uh, that helps you focus, relax, sleep, or even meditate. Uh, this is actually backed by science. Uh, they employ a team of scientists and composers to work together to engineer music that is specifically designed to enhance these different states within minutes of use. Um, so definitely go check them out on www.brain.fm. Uh, and thanks again for Brain FM for sponsoring this year's listener survey. So Adam, let's just dive in to this week's news. And there's really one big story that we have to discuss. Uh, it literally came out, I would say, right after we recorded last week, and it developed even more this week. It is that Apple and Epic Games are now in a billion-dollar lawsuit. I have to imagine that's a price tag around this thing. So, Adam, what what is going on with this lawsuit? What what is happening between Epic and Apple right now? What isn't going on with this lawsuit is the better <laughs> question. <laughs> it is uh, it, not just the lawsuit, but it, there's sort of a daily, uh, near daily escalation of uh, of consequences. But uh, the, the high level, in case you, you haven't read about it yet, is uh, that Epic Games, uh, maker of Fortnite, they, uh, they pushed through an update uh, through the App Store um, that, they, that included a different payment processor that allow, would allow you to enter your credit card um, on your iPhone to uh, purchase their uh, virtual currency in the game V-Bucks. Um, and this is a violation of App Store rules, and they, they knew that. They, they pushed it through specifically to get Apple to take action. Apple pulled Fortnite out of the App Store, uh, and Epic then immediately filed a lawsuit and um, released a short video parodying the, Apple, the classic Apple 1984 ad uh, when they first uh, released the Macintosh. And mm -hmm. things have been escalating on a, on a, on a <laughs> near daily basis. Um, Google is also involved. Epic did the same thing in the Google Play Store, and Google has uh, the same policies. So um, Fortnite is now out of, out of both of the uh, mobile app stores. Um, you can still play Fortnite on your iPhone and Android phones because pulling it from the store just prevents new downloads, but it's still active on your, your current devices. But it might not be forever because... Um... Yeah, and I was saying, and, and, and why might it not be forever? And then what did Apple do, Adam? <laughs> uh, How did they escalate this scenario? Apple basically said that if Epic didn't either pull Fortnite from themselves or submit an update that that removes the uh, the alternate payment system, um, that they would not only keep keep Fortnite out of the store, uh, but revoke Epic's developer certificates, which would mean that it would pull Fortnite off of it would disable Fortnite on everybody's phones that it was already installed in, and. Uh, I think even more significant than that, it would mean that they would no longer be able to update one of their other products, the Unreal Engine, um, which is used by, I'm going to go with 
hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of games that run on iOS, um, mm-hmm. say hundreds of thousands uh, of games that run on iOS um, and Android and, and other platforms as well. That is a pretty, pretty dramatic action. Um, spiking Unreal would uh, hurt Epic, not only Epic, but also lots of other developers. Um, and frankly, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure that they are the, all of those other game developers are not super happy to being pulled into the middle of this, this fight. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, so there's a lot of like back and forth there. I, I think that ultimately there's going to be some kind of temporary resolution while the lawsuits go forward. Um, and the lawsuits are, are really going to be sort of the, the important thing here. What's really at stake here is a lot of uh, Apple's and Google's control over these app stores, Apple and Google, yep. but especially Apple. I think the the pent up discontent that a lot of developers have with some of those rules. Um, some of those rules are, are there for, for valuable reasons. And I think, you know, it's obvious what, what trade-offs are being made, but particularly rules around payments and Apple's 30% cut and not being able to use other payment processors and not being able to do things like link out to the website to say, to do things like buy Kindle books or subscribe to mm-hmm. Hulu or Netflix. Um, all, all of those things that have been mild annoyances are just sort of starting to pile up. Um, and I think combined with the regulatory scrutiny that Apple is facing in the US and in Europe, Epic is really forcing the issue and, and pushing this to a crescendo that I think is going to force Apple to change. It's really interesting because uh, to your point, I think this is each week I feel like tech and politics, again, gets closer and closer and closer into being the main story. And I think this is one of those stories where it is essentially mainstream now. Um, this idea of technology companies, their power, how big they are, and if or if and if not, they should be regulated, and if so, how and which ways. So, so Adam, that's that's the baseline right there, kind of the what's what's in the press, what's in the pages, um, that's going on on between the two of them. But if we dig a little deeper, you know, what are you thinking or seeing from like like Epic standpoint about uh, what this means for like the future uh, and potentially like that next shift in platform ownership essentially? Yeah, I think the the thing that Epic is really fighting for. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there there there's some some money, but it's really about that direct relationship with their consumers. Epic has that direct relationship, but right now Apple is kind of standing in the middle and, and Google is kind of standing in the middle. And honestly, so are, are, are the, the game consoles. So are Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo kind of standing in the middle from where Epic would like to be with their consumers. And, you know, that it's it's not just about what we're seeing today with Fortnite. It's not just about the, you know, the the Unreal Engine. It's it's also about Epic's ambitions for the future. And, you know, Epic CEO Tim Sweeney has been pretty vocal about what he thinks is coming uh, with the metaverse, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I think what is happening is that, he, you know, Epic and I think a, a lot of us see that um, these our, our major tech companies, uh, Apple and Google, obviously among them, are really in a in a gatekeeper positions right now and are potentially going to hold on to their control of the industry um, as the next platform starts to rise up um, and as the next platform emerges. And if that next platform is the metaverse, Epic wants to have a seat at the table. They want to be one of the the, the players controlling the industry and controlling adoption with it. Um, but right now, because they really only work indirectly through other platforms, it's difficult for them to, to have that seat at the table. Um, it's sort of like the iPhone 
one, it's hard to remember this, but back in the day when the iPhone first came out, you had to, to connect it to your computer, to iTunes, to activate it and to like sync things like your calendar and your, uh, your contacts, uh, before, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the iPhone and the iPod all the way back to the iPod really only worked because Apple was able to ship software for Windows and Mac that allowed it to interface with the iPod and then the iPhone. And so Epic is is sort of in this position where they want to get that direct connection to consumers so that as we go to the next platform shift, as the metaverse starts to emerge, um, they have that connection and they're not restricted in terms of what they can ship uh, and how they can how they can connect with consumers. Um, and mm -hmm. it's not restricted by, you know, the platform limitations of the iPhone and Android. Um, so I think that that's ultimately what this is about. I don't think it's just about the money. Um, I think it's about making sure that other other players can emerge as powerful platform vendors of their, of their, of their own as the next platform shift happens. Yes, Adam. Absolutely. Well said. Um, and if we do look at Epic's product suite, especially with Unreal Engine, we know that doesn't just do gaming. You know, it, it, it has powered uh, virtual sets for The Mandalorian. Uh, so it's in entertainment. It has, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of developers using that in some way, shape or form. So for them, you know, it's a much larger you know, piece of the puzzle or the pie that they're playing for uh, with this essentially like that piece of infrastructure that is powering that next generational shift uh, because we know so many things are being built on this uh, Unreal Engine. Um, so this will be, a, again, a continuing story that we will be following here on Floor 9 uh, with Epic and Apple, but more generally um, tech and politics. Next up, we have another piece of news about another company that uh, is getting caught up in, in, in some politics. It's TikTok. Uh, so TikTok has struck a deal with United Masters, uh, which will allow artists on TikTok to distribute their songs directly to streaming services and other partners directly. So essentially, if you're a TikTok artist, uh, they have partnered with, with United Masters. You make a, a sweet beat, a beatbox, a sound, whatever it might be, uh, and it will allow you to actually push that to Spotify, to Apple, uh, to SoundCloud, you know, these places where um, people listen to music and you can actually make money from it. Um, so just another tool that we have seen TikTok implement in their platform to support creators on their platform uh, and really allowing them to get their content out because um, I know it's something that, that we've been thinking about from a uh, just in general with social media today and how content lives and performs. It's meant to be out in the world. Uh, the, the, the more you try to keep it contained, the less valuable it is. So, you know, aside from TikTok also raising $200 million for a creator fund, it seems like they're really investing in their their creators um, and getting them the the money and revenue that they essentially deserve. I think this is an example of TikTok trying to uh, prove some of their value. While they're being uh, shopped around uh, and uh, potentially uh, acquired, I think this is an, a way for TikTok to demonstrate some immediate value um, and also to you know rally creators on their platform and, and encourage them to, uh, to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's it's tough. Um, if TikTok shuts down, a lot of creators lose a lot of their following if they don't have them directly shifted somewhere else. And we know shifting audiences is very difficult uh, between platforms. So 
really anything that like, they can do to keep their creators happy and creating on TikTok, uh, I think is super important. Um, but also we know that there's a lot of music comes off of TikTok. Uh, it's becoming a place where artists actually launch and promote music and new hit singles and whatever it might be. Uh, the best example, little Nas X with his, um, you know, old town road song. So I think there's also a whole angle here just about how music and the music industry is shifting and changing, um, from a, you know, distribution perspective, um, and, and a marketing perspective as, as well. Um, so a lot of great stuff there. Sorry, were you going to say something, Adam? Yeah. The only other thing I was going to say is notably in case, uh, just to update what we had been talking about previously with TikTok, there is a new executive order that actually is giving ByteDance 90 days, uh, to sell TikTok, Mm. which puts the sale date after the election. And, I don't know exactly how these things work, but I wonder if uh, Joe Biden wins the presidential election, if there might be, you know, some kind of injunction or something to uh, prevent any action until he takes office. Probably. Tech and politics. We're we're back. (laughs) Uh, And lastly, we're going to round out this news section, which is a few more updates um, notably, Snapchat is experimenting with uh, users sharing more of their content off app. Uh, again, similar to TikTok, uh, content in this day and age does better when you can share it in any place and you make it as easy as possible for users to share that content. Um, so it seems like Snapchat is leaning into this trend and trying to open up their platform a little bit more, sharing some of their you know, discovery partner contents, um, Snapchat skins, um, Excuse me, Snapchat, Snapchat Originals, some of the, some of their Discover Partner content, um, just to reach and acquire new users and really kind of continue to grow the Snapchat platform. So, uh, pretty interesting there, Adam. I don't have anything to say on that in the world of uh, Snapchat? No, it's a, probably a good strategy for uh, convincing other folks to uh, check it out if they see some content that they like. Um, this mm-hmm. is the kind of content the the Snapchat originals and the partner content is the kind of stuff that might get you to download and install Snapchat. If you say, start watching a show and like it, um, Mm. without requiring you to, to move your, your social graph over. So even if you don't have friends on Snapchat, you can still watch some content. So, uh, you know, I think it makes sense as a, as a way to attract new users. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to end on a fun bit of news here uh, that's super relevant to today's episode where we'll be talking to Brian Hughes about the OTT and streaming landscape is that Netflix has put a shuffle play button right on the home. I think this I think this is hysterical. Uh, is it a randomly randomized shuffle play where you get the whole library of Netflix coming at you? Uh, or is it based on an algorithm uh, where they try and recommend content that, that they think you'd like? Um, I'm okay with either. I think the latter is more fun, though, if it was just totally chaotic. And it's just like, here you go. Here's got some content to shove it down your throat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's totally chaotic and weird. Uh, and, uh, you know, who, who knows what you might discover when you hit that shuffle button. Yeah, right. Uh, maybe they're feeling lucky. So with that, Adam, let's go jump into the main section of this week's episode, uh, where we'll be talking to Brian Hughes, the EVP of Magna Global for audience insights and strategy, uh, all about OTT and streaming. So Brian, welcome to Floor 9. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah. Hey, we're always happy to have you, uh, you know, nerd out with us about OTT and streaming. So to kick things off, Brian and Adam, who are the front runners right now in the OTT and streaming landscape? You know, I think 
uh, everybody, you know, looks to Netflix as having the early lead. Um, but I think that Disney is is rapidly catching up with them. And I'm very, uh, very bullish on the uh, the bundle of Disney Plus, Hulu, uh, and uh, and ESPN Plus in the U.S. and and probably Disney Plus, Star, and uh, and ESPN globally. And I think the addition of that premium VOD window uh, with Mulan on Disney Plus is really interesting. And I think a year from now, we're going to be talking about Disney as, uh, as you know, neck and neck with Netflix and probably leading the conversation in terms of business model and uh, possibly even, you know, product and feature uh, innovation in the space. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, definitely, you know, Netflix has, has, has done pretty well considering, you know, the content changes there and, and, you know, but during quarantine, they were very strong. I will point out that if we're looking at sort of the total minutes of streaming on a typical TV set, they are about they count up for about a third of it these days. They were at about half of it a year and a half ago. So there, there is definitely more competition out there. Um, I agree with Adam on Disney Plus. They have accumulated subscribers very fast, faster than, than anyone before them, I think. Um, and they are definitely doing a lot in terms of experimenting with movie windows and you know unique launches and stuff like that definitely one to watch but i'll say a dark horse here is uh hbo max and the reason i say that is because although there was a lot of confusion at launch about who has access and where do you access it and and how do you get it and all that uh, i think they have a very strong library um and so i think you know well i'm very interested to see what they do with the ad supported tier next year that's great. Well, then let's let's just dive straight into this conversation. Adam, what is the latest going on in the world of OTT and streaming? Hashtag the streaming wars. One interesting thing that happened this week is uh, Apple launched a bundle of sorts um, where if you are an Apple TV Plus subscriber, which is mostly people who are getting it for free because they bought a new uh, iPhone or other Apple device uh, since last fall, um, but if you have an active TV Plus subscription, you can now get a bundle of CBS All Access and Showtime um, in the Apple TV app for uh, about half of what it, those two would cost uh, together um, separately. Uh, and, you know, this is an interesting wrinkle. It's unclear if this is, uh, you know, the seeds of Apple maybe looking to put together a larger bundle of OTT services and and uh, and sell them, sell them that way, or if this is really just uh, CBS and Viacom uh, biding their time while they wait to uh, relaunch their uh, their services as some sort of combined service sometime next year. I think the interesting thing about this for me is that um, Viacom has traditionally been pretty generous in terms of allowing its content to be distributed on different platforms and stuff, while CBS has uh, traditionally kept things closer to the best. So it's interesting to see if the sort of Viacom approach um, will take hold in terms of you know, allowing more platforms to carry their content if that kind of, you know, carries over to the CBS stuff now that they are a combined entity. Aside from that, I think we have seen the rest of the announced services finally come to market that we were expecting. So we now know Peacock is live. HBO Max is now live. Disney Plus has been performing very well. Uh, Quibi is out to market so we're we're in it. Everybody is here. Everybody is here to play. Do we think we can sustain all of these from a consumer perspective? Or is that whole idea of subscription fatigue going to be something that is going to be start to kicking in, in in these next few months? 
I mean, I think so. Um, I mean, my personal theory is that people will start seeking a balance of the purely paid SVOD services, like the Netflixes of the world, and ad-supported, where you can get it for free or at a reduced price. Um, worth po- pointing out that Peacock is actually the only purely free ad-supported uh, option available right now. Everybody else, uh, including Quibi, has at least a you know a four or five buck entry point, and in including ads. Yeah, I also suspect that we're going to start, especially you know, if as as parts of the country are, are opening up and people are spending less time at home and it's summer. I think we're going to start to see a lot more churn um, and with people, you know, signing up, watching the, you know, two or three shows uh, that they are interested in and, you know, churning out at the end of a month or two um, and, and churning into a new service. And I don't think that that's, you know, obviously the the service providers would prefer that you not churn. Um, but I think at the at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it it is an interesting signal to them as to which content attracts which, how many users, um, and that could help them sort of refine their their programming strategy going forward to reduce that churn to make sure there's there's always new content. I know CBS actually just kicked off a promotion uh, uh, around uh, I forget what the number was, but it, you know it was something like 120 days of Star Trek or something where there's like new Star Trek content coming continuously for X amount of time, and of course you know Star Trek is, is CBS All Access is it's really their like flagship. Uh, brand, but uh, you know, marketing it specifically as like if you like Star Trek, sign up now and don't don't cancel because there's more coming. <laughs> yeah, that will be interesting to see. I mean, I you know one of the things we saw that was that during you know the sort of heart of lockdown, um, you know April through July kind of time frame, we saw some Nielsen data that showed that very few people, around two percent, actually eliminated any subscriptions. They either kept the ones they had or actually brought on new ones. Um, I don't know if that's sustainable going forward, but, um, you know, at the same time, we, of course, have cord cutting happening. So, for example, um, MVPDs lost uh, 2 million subscribers just in the first quarter of this year. Um, And we are expecting over the next several years that, um, you know, that we'll go from where we are today, which is just under 80 million people that have some kind of MVPD cable satellite subscription to under 50 million by 2025 so pretty significant drop off you know almost 30 million over the next five years and is that all transferring to like ott and streaming services or is that a combination of us like that like that attention going to multiple different places yeah i mean i think it's a combination of things it's um you know i think people have gotten a taste of you know um controlling your content very closely and sort of curating your experience via ott services of course now with all these different services in play um I think OTT starts to face a similar problem to what cable has. And it's like, how do you afford to have all the content that you want and how can you kind of pick and choose and make some decisions about what's most important to you and, and have that, you know, coming to your TV set. So I think the, the, the thing that's probably controlling that shift um, and, and that is, is holding a lot of those folks on, uh, on cable today is, is sports, even though we didn't really have sports for a while. Um, some folks were obviously holding on to their, their cable in anticipation of, uh, of sports coming back. Um, and I think that the, an interesting uh, sort of development that might Im- start to impact the, the timing of when sports uh, starts to go more OTT, um, Verizon just announced a deal where uh, it's above a certain level. If you're if you're subscribed uh, as a Verizon Wireless customer above a certain level, um, they're now giving you not just uh, Disney Plus but also 
the entire uh, Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus bundle uh, that Disney offers uh, as part of that deal. And that is probably, obviously it's great for Disney Plus and great for Hulu, but it's probably going to a huge get for ESPN Plus. Um, so all of these you know, Verizon Wireless customers are going to have free access to ESPN Plus, which should really boost their numbers. Um, and that helps you know, Disney make the case to eventually start bringing some sports over from ESPN to ESPN Plus. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add from uh, the sports perspective, and this is really, you know, referencing cable more generally. So, you know, as Adam mentioned, a lot of people probably held on to their MVPD subscriptions because of sports. But, you know, with increasing competition from streaming, um, you know, I think the MVPD world, the traditional sort of multi-channel subscription world, is going to have to go towards a place that they have avoided uh, vehemently for, for decades, which is a la carte. And that's the way that they, you know, they can get people to stay on that really the hardcore fans that want to pay for the sports network to see it, um, but, you know, don't want necessarily 100 other channels that they're not going to watch. Yeah, but I, it's, I don't think it's too hard to imagine a cable offering that is entirely sports focused and that is cheaper than it would be otherwise, right? Like, it's not going to be cheap. And I think that that's the thing that, you know, everybody in the industry knows, and it's why they haven't made that offering to consumers yet. Um, but at some point, you know, there, there are consumers who will pay $50, $60 a month just for, for sports content. And, uh, the cable companies will, will make that offering to them at some point just to hang on to them. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And, and it's interesting you point that out because if you look at, you know, price per subscriber for ESPN, which is in the 10, $12 per subscriber range versus their typical entertainment network, which is less than a dollar. If you look at the per subscriber fee, it's definitely the driving force, you know, there. Yeah. So, it, you know, it would be easy to imagine a probably not inexpensive, but, but you know, attainable for the hardcore fans, you know, purely sports package. We talked briefly just about, you know, brands and kind of like this impact on our brands and our advertisers. Like, what are these opportunities for brands like and how can they get involved? Because obviously there are, there are ways to get involved through original content. There are some services that have, you know, uh, ad supported. You can do, you know, like your traditional advertising. But as we just start to see like this big shift of attention, again, to continue to go to these platforms, you know, how should brands be thinking about approaching this as they're, you know, thinking about their media campaigns and their, and, and their strategies? Like, what are the opportunities? What are the challenges? Um, what's his, you know, go to market strategy, the recommendation, what do you, what do you gentlemen have for, uh, all of our listeners out there? Well, I mean, I can say that based on the, you know, our own research that we've done with Roku, um, we know that the sort of lighter ad load environment in the OTT space has a greater impact than a typical linear ad load would on, you know, all your sort of traditional brand effect me metrics, if you will. Um, so that's one good thing. And I think, you know, if you look at what Peacock is doing, limiting the ad load to five minutes per hour, you know, that's definitely a, a good sort of way to, you know, sell through the idea that, all right, well, there's fewer ads, people are paying more attention, you're going to get more impact for your dollar from, from being here. Uh, I mean, the downside, of course, is that you get what you pay for. So if, if you want to get that, those more impactful impressions in that less cluttered environment, then you're going to have to pay a premium. Um, and so I think that's the, that's the challenge for advertisers is, you know, is there enough data out there? Are they comfortable enough, you know, paying that premium and, and putting, you know, and, and feeling like they are getting sufficient value for what they're paying? The, the one thing that not a lot of brands are really exploring yet, but that I do think is, is the, the future of, of a lot of uh, 
um, certainly OTT uh, marketing is um, creating their own sort of premium branded content. Uh, I think, you know, we talk about, we, we point to Airbnb as a good example of this, where they're actually producing feature length films, TV shows that are not, uh, you know, they're not, it's not a, a, a 90 minute feature that's an Airbnb ad, um, but it is showing you you know, how, how to travel using Airbnb, um, as sort of a, a sort of side thing. Um, and you know, they've, they've, uh, really been a pioneer in that space. And I think we're going to see more of that kind of content, uh, content that is produced by brands, uh, to reinforce their, the sort of lifestyle positioning that they are, are, are after. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's, there, there's definitely a, you know, a, a role for that and an appetite for that. But I think there's also an appetite to get stuff for free, and the way that yeah. that happens <laughs> is is with ads, you know. And so, uh, you know, I'm, what I'm curious about is um, what happens to some existing services like Quibi, you know, like they have a, I think that's you know four or five bucks a month, but with ads, um, do they do they maybe move to a free model where there's ads, but you get the, you know, you don't have to pay a subscription free. Uh, we know that HBO Max or Warner Media is going to have an ad-supported version of that app next year. What's that going to look like? Is it going to be free, or is it going to be tiered like Peacock is? Um, that's interesting to think about. And I also wonder a lot about about Hulu, honestly, because they were kind of the forerunners in the hybrid SVOD model, where you know you pay a certain subscription fee and you get ads. And they've been very successful, but I think the reason that they've been so successful is that they became this sort of one-stop shop for all your recently telecast TV content that you want to catch up on um, and, and do so with lighter ad loads. And now that, you know, that's sort of solely the domain of Disney and a, a lot of, of the other players like NBCU are going to be starting to, you know, pull their content off in favor of their own services. What's going to happen? You know, how does, how does Disney position that going forward? I mean, it seemed like it's like when it comes to content, Netflix did okay, right? Like they came through and Marvel is slowly pulling things off and uh, all these other providers are pulling their content off. So it seems like if that were to happen to Disney, I think I think they'd be okay. Um, I think what will happen is that, yeah, people are going to silo their content. They're going to take what's theirs for as long as they can. And then we'll see what works. You know, like I think the market will decide it's like, oh, you know, let's say, for example, this new CBS All Access Viacom thing doesn't work out the way they intended it. Well, maybe they'll be taking that content and putting it back on Netflix where they can get that distribution. Um, I think for some brands, they they have the vault that they have the like the uh, like the breath to do it and like that like that consumer loyalty. And we'll see, you know, who isn't able to do that or who isn't able to do it to such a same degree. Yeah, I think we'll we'll know pretty pretty quickly in the next year or so because. Um, Disney did announce that they will be launching uh, uh, something that's equivalent to Hulu, but that is branded Star um, in uh, some international markets, I think early next year. And that is only going to have um, owned content. So it'll be, you know, Fox and the more sort of adult content from Disney that doesn't fit on uh, on Disney Plus. Um, so I, 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 that is basically what Hulu will become eventually. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see you know, how that's performing compared to uh, other entries in, in international markets. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because we come we, we come again back to the concept of the bundle, you know, and how are people yep. going to be <laughs> yep. how are people going to be bundling things in the future to get the content they want? And, you know, of course, the concept of the super bundle, which you guys coined, 
you know, what does that look like for these big, you know, media conglomerates in the future? And, and, you know, of course, it even applies to traditional MVPDs like we were just talking about. How do people bundle the channels that they want if they're going to continue to subscribe, you know, to keep it's cycle, uh, Brian. on their TV we're set? Just, we're just in the middle of it, and it's, and it's going to bundle yes. again, and we'll have this conversation <laughs> in a year, and we'll circle back on it. Um, well, with that, Brian, thank you for joining us on Floor 9. Uh, always a pleasure to have you here talking about OTT and streaming. As a reminder, the Floor 9 listener survey is now live. Uh, thank you again to Brain FM for sponsoring this year's listener survey. You can find them at www.brain.fm for more information. Uh, and you can look for the listener survey in our show notes on our Medium website or in any of our social posts. So definitely go fill that out. Uh, that means a lot and it really helps us improve the show. Uh, so thank you. And we'll see you all back here next week on Floor 9.